May all grace, mercy, and peace be to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Old Testament lesson from Ezekiel 18, as I mentioned earlier, will serve as the basis for meditation this morning. If you're a fan of Major League Baseball like I am, you know that today is the last day of the regular season. And if you're a fan of a team that can perennially lives in the basement like I am, Kansas City Royals, then you know that there is no hope except for next season. <laughs> so as the season comes to an end, I've been listening to a lot of the coaches talk about why their teams aren't going to the playoffs this year and, and the excuses they, they make. And uh, as I was listening to this, especially this last week, I was reminded of, of a minor league coach who many, many years ago um, got really irate at a center fielder. And uh, at the end of the inning, when the center fielder came off the field, he grabbed the center fielder and, and placed him down on the bench and said, you know, you're, you're basically an idiot. You're not going back out there. And then the coach proceeded to take center field himself. So that inning, as he's out playing center field, the first ball that came his way landed in center field, and he went to field it, and it took a bad hop, popped him right in the jaw. Two batters later, another ball came his way, and he lost it in the glare of the sun and came down and bonked him right on top of the head. And then the last batter, and it was a really long inning, not only for, this, for that coach, but for the entire team. The last batter hit one out of his way, and he went to die for it, and it went between his hands, and it smacked him right in the eye. So at the end of the inning, they finally got through this sufferable inning, and he comes off the field embarrassed, obviously, and very irate, and he grabs his center fielder by the collar, and he says, you idiot, you screwed up center field so bad that not even I can fix it. This was a true story. This was a minor league team up in, up in the Virginia, Baltimore area where this happened. And I, I, you know, I don't say that just to bring levity or, or you know, some humor to it, but it illustrates how, people, how quick people can be to point the finger at somebody else. You know, uh, it illustrates how people sometimes won't even take ownership for their own faults and their own mistakes, and that's very problematic even today. I mean, just look around at our society today with politics and everything else that goes on, and there is always this. It's like the old saying, right? Um, Overpromise, underdeliver, and blame somebody else. But as a good friend of mine once told me, Raleigh, look at it. When you point the finger at somebody else, you got three pointing right back at you. Very true. There are always three fingers pointing back at you, and that's a blame game, as I like to call it. What we rarely see is somebody that stands up and takes ownership for their mistakes. So I want to go back to the days of Ezekiel for an example of this blame game. Today we find the exiles quoting one of their favorite proverbs. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. What does this even mean? Even God wants to know what it means. He asks him, what do you mean by quoting this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Well, as God asks the Israelites this question, it's kind of rhetorical. He never directly answers it, but he does rebut it, and it implies what it means. But here's what that proverb means. It means that it's all the parents' fault for their problems. It's all the parents' fault, not their own. And so here they are, uh, a Jewish people who have been removed from the land of Judea, who have been ordered by their captives, the Babylonians, to march hundreds of miles where they're settled into a floodplain that's far, far ideal, 
less ideal than the hills of Judea that they came from. They left behind uh, family members and homes and a beloved city. And to boot, their holy city and temple that was once thought to be, oh, I don't know, untouchable, is crumbling around them. And to make matters worse than Ezekiel tells them that, well, the Babylonians aren't done with them yet. They're not done with Judea yet. And Jerusalem is still the fall. So for these, these captive Israelites, they're, uh, they're very much um, unsettled. It's very, very bleak for them. But the problem is, is that they don't think that they're at fault for what's going on around here. In their minds, how could their almighty God let this happen? How could they deserve for what they're going through? So in their minds, they're thinking, aha, you know what? We're paying for the sins of our parents. So they're not at fault. So what they do is they use this, this proverb as a crutch to absolve them in their minds from anything that could have possibly gone wrong. That's why they quote it so often. They're suffering sins from past generations, or so they believed. They're caught up in a great blame game. Now, in fairness to these exiles, there is a measure of truth in this proverb. I mean, who hasn't bemoaned their parents at some point in their lives for their own shortcomings? Oh, it's my mom's fault that I was late for practice today. It's my dad's fault that my tuition payment did get made. It's my parents' fault that I have these bad habits today that I have. It goes on and on and on. And what point do we stop and look things differently and take ownership for our own plights? Well, for the Judean exiles, it's God who cuts them short and opens their eyes as to who's really at fault for their troubles. God says, as I declare, as I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. And the soul who sins shall die. So God starts here by pointing out that, that He, God, is a God of the present. Not just the past and not just the future, but the present. And that He holds all lives in His hands. It's His opening salvo towards sinking the claims that the exiles are paying for the sins of, well, past generations. You know, my friends, the beginning of realization of taking ownership for something is removing the things that are crutches and enablers, just like God does with that proverb. And this is what God does. For the exiles, the beginning of their understanding of who really is to blame for their plights is to remove that quote. And it would seem this whole piece is about blame and guilt and punishment when you read through that, that section of Ezekiel. And that's somewhat correct. It's somewhat correct. But it's also about what lies beyond that. So if the, if the exiles are to blame, and since they're guilty, then what does this mean for them? You know, God just finished saying that the soul who sins shall die. Seems to me like the exile's troubles just then got a whole lot worse, did they not? But God then pivots into defense. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O Israel, O house of Israel, is my way not just? 
Is it not your ways that are not just? He starts laying out the defense to the exiles to show them three things. One, that not only are they to blame, but two, that he's God and he's a just God. And three, he doesn't really desire for them to die, to perish. Why will you die, O house of Israel? I take no pleasure in your death, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Turn. Live. In a way, it's kind of ironic because it seems like this whole chapter is about guilt and punishment, and yet God doesn't take delight in it. So why does God take declaration of ownership of all lives then? Laying claim to fathers and sons and all souls. Wouldn't this mean then that God gets to decide who lives and dies? Might seem that way, but that's not the case. The bigger issue is this. If the soul that sins dies and the exiles are guilty, is there any possibility of life beyond guilt? It goes back to God saying then that the proverb the exiles have been quoting will be no more. They can no longer have a crutch, a scapegoat, if you will, to blame their problems on. They must take ownership of their own sins in order to to live, to begin to heal. Because God values life. God is just. There is life beyond guilt. But it starts not only with ownership, but getting rid of those crutches that we have in our lives. With pointing fingers at oneself instead of at somebody else or something else. And believe it or not, taking ownership, the fault, also allows one to let go of it. To cast it away. God makes that clear. Abundantly clear when he tells them, cast away all your transgressions that you've committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. How many of us hang on to guilt and live and wallow and mire in that misery that comes along with it? And isn't it interesting how we'll wallow in that guilt, but sometimes we will never take claim of it? It's like you're torn between the two. But in order to take ownership, we got to take ownership of that guilt. That means that we're going to have to suffer a little bit of pain in the process in order to let it go, to get rid of it. What troubles do we find ourselves in the midst of today? What are the things that we need to start looking at and taking ownership in our own lives in order to get rid of it? Who are we casting blame upon? Well, I know, let's start as a society as a whole. We're in the midst of pandemic, right? Both racial and disease. Be easy for us to point our fingers at our forefathers for the racial problems we have today. Be easy to keep pointing the fingers at everybody else in the world for the COVID thing going on. And yet, you know, why can't we just stand up and say, let's work together and find the solution to this thing? Why don't we realize that, you know, that our financial problems are sometimes our own problems, our own doings, or our health problems because we've mistreated our bodies, or our spiritual problems because, more importantly, we've not spent time where we should nurturing ourselves. The realization that I came to not that long ago. But it takes a village. It takes us pointing out to each other that we've got to do those things in order to get over them. We've got to get rid of the crutches and the excuses that we have to move on. 
What's in the past, my friends, we need to leave in the past. Bury it. What's more important is what lies ahead. So let me ask you this. Are we going to be souls that, that die? Or are we going to turn away from our transgressions and renew our hearts and our spirits, both individually and as a community? You know, where I work full-time in my full-time job, um, we belong, we're members of a, of a larger organization, a conglomerate called Leading Age. Some of you that worked in the healthcare profession might recognize that, that name. So we get these daily emails um, and updates and words of encouragement from time to time. And one lady wrote, wrote a letter to the organization last week that I thought was very well written, but also illustrates somebody who, um, who looked beyond the things that are happening now and took ownership for what's going on in her own organization. And she speaks of forgiveness and to a certain degree of ownership. Her letter was addressing the care of elderly in her organization. And at one point, she said she felt the need to apologize and ask forgiveness of the elderly residents that they care for because of the current situation. She felt that she needed to for, ask for forgiveness because they could not see their loved ones during these times. She needed to ask her forgiveness because they became ill at times with the COVID virus. And she went on to say all this because she felt that even though they were doing their best, their best was not good enough for them. And she, but what was interesting, she says, I could blame the government for not having enough PPE. And I can, I can blame this over here for, you know, this one employee over here for bringing into the organization. And I can do all these things. But at the end of the day, if we don't look at ourselves and realize that sometimes we are a part of the problem, then we're never going to heal. We're never going to get past it. And there's never going to be any kind of direction going into the future. And I thought it was a very good uh, explanation or an illustration of a blame game. You know, it's time for crutches to go away. It's time for a deep reflection of our own lives. And that'll probably bring about guilt and some hurt in our, on ourselves. But there is life beyond the guilt. There's abundance of grace waiting in the open arms of Jesus. You know, he, God took ownership of us. Not saying he took ownership and took the blame for our problems, but he took the ownership of us because we couldn't heal ourselves. He took our guilt and poured it upon his son who bore the wrath that we so justly deserved so that we could have life, so that we could, have, that we could live forever. Why? Because he takes no delight in our punishment. You know, and in our baptisms, we're given a new life, a new spirit, a new spirit that stays with us throughout this earthly journey that helps us to repent and turn away, that helps us to renew our hearts and to live. And taking ownership of our faults is the first step in being free. Claiming freedom through Christ is taking ownership of a life beyond guilt. And to God be all the glory. Amen.